I want to share with you uh, somebody that had a really good day uh, a few years back, a woman by the name of Ashley Register. In fact, at the end of this day, if you had said, how are you doing, she would have said, I'm doing great. Ashley was part of a game show, a short-lived game show back in 2007 called The Duel. Does anybody even remember this game show? Yeah, that, it wasn't, it was on TV for a short period of time. Uh, the game show consisted of two contestants going against one another, answering ever-escalating questions um, round after round. They would place uh, certain bets. By the end of the game, the person who got the final question correct would win the jackpot. And so as she and the other contestant were going against one another, they actually made it to the final round where the pot of money that was available to win was $1.7 million dollars. That's probably why it was a short-lived game show. They were giving away too much money. But $1.7 million. And so they came to the final round, and she and her other contestant were faced with this question. Which of these weighs more? A, a gallon of water. B, a gallon of crude oil. C, a gallon of vegetable oil. Or D, they all weigh the same. Okay. Figure out your answer to it. We're going to see if you won $1.7 million here. So Ashley put in her answer, and she said, A, a gallon of water weighs more than oil, weighs more than crude oil, weighs more than vegetable oil. Her contestant guessed D, they all weigh the same. Later on, he said, he's like, I got kind of confused. Thought it was one of those kind of trick questions, like what weighs more, a pound of feathers or a pound of gold, right? What weighs more? They weigh the same. They both are a pound, right? But sure enough, the host read the answer. And the answer was, A, a gallon of water weighs more than a gallon of either crude oil or vegetable oil. And in that moment, because she knew the answer to the question, she was a millionaire. Won $1.7 million. Needless to say, she was ecstatic. All because... At some point, she had learned the answer to that question. Knowing the answer to that question changed Ashley Register's life. If she had not known the answer, she would have been like that other guy. Nobody knows his, his name. He lost. Lost $1.7 million. Now, not knowing the answer to questions posed in a game show is one thing, Right? Like, probably not every day your life will be changed by knowing that water weighs more than oil. In that moment, it did matter for for Ashley. I would like to share with you, though, that there are some questions that you and I are confronted with in life that whether or not you know the answer to them, specifically the correct answer to them, can truly be life-altering and life-changing. There are some questions that life throws your way that you and I must know the answer to because it will have a huge impact on your life. And that's why I am so excited and so looking forward to today and the beginning of this new sermon series that's going to take us really from now till about Easter, this new sermon series in the book of Genesis. Because 
as we look at the book of Genesis, we are going to discover that it answers some of life's most important questions. Questions that if you and I know the right answer to and live in light of those answers, can radically change our lives on a day-to-day basis. In fact, and I don't believe I'm speaking hyperbole here, in fact, I would say, and, and part of my challenge is going to be to demonstrate this over the coming weeks, I would say that every problem, every problem in our world and in our lives, the pain, the suffering, the disappointments, can be traced back to people believing and living in light of their own answers to these questions rather than God's answers. Are you you tracking with me? I, I believe that we can trace the problems of our world and the problems of our lives back to people living and believing their answers to life's most important questions rather than what God has to say. And I'm getting ahead of myself here, but, but, I, but I want to just put that out there to you about why this book, the book of Genesis, is so important. But we're going to come back to those questions in, in just a moment. But before we can actually look at those questions that Genesis asks and answers, we have to do something that's so important. And that is get a little background on this book. If we're going to read, study, interpret, understand, and apply the book of Genesis rightly, that you and I need to have some context to what it is we're reading. And so in order to do that, over the next few moments, what I'm going to do for you is we're going to talk about who wrote this book, um, who they wrote it to, and that will ultimately get us into the primary purpose of, of this book. So, so ready or not, here we go. And sometimes I say this, some messages on Sunday morning, this one's going to be a little bit different than a typical one. I'm going to give you a bit of a, of a fire hose, okay? But I think you can take it, all right? And so let me start really simply to give you a little background on this book. Uh, the book of Genesis, if you want to find it in your Bible, do you, you guys know where it's at? All right, this is like, you, this is the one time we're all going to get this really easily. It's the very first book of the Bible. Genesis is the, the very first book of the Bible. And so if you want to turn there, go ahead, be there, be prepared, because we're going to come back to it. But it's the very first book of the Bible. And the name Genesis comes from the Greek translation of a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is Bereshit, and Bereshit simply means beginnings or, or origins. Genesis is the book of beginnings, the book of origins. Um, what beginnings? What origins? Well, the origins and the beginnings of, guess what? Everything. This book is a book designed and written to, to show us how everything began. Now, we're going to come back to that later, but, but this book is called Genesis because it tells us all about the beginning. And it's actually... A col- it's part of a collection of five books. Anybody know what the name of those five books, the first five books of the Old Testament are called? Who's going to... Yeah, the, 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 the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch. The first five books. The entirety of the Old Testament is called by the Jewish people the, the Torah, but, but the first five books, ready for this? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy make up the first five books of the Old Testament. And they're all attributed to 
their authorship is all attributed to one, one individual primarily. We're going to talk about that in just, just a moment. We're going to talk about who do we believe to be the author of this book. But before I do that, let's just do a little Christian Theology 101. Um, as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, as those who believe in the words of this book, who do we believe is the ultimate, ultimate author of all of Scripture? God himself. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by or is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or the woman of God would be equipped for every good work. We believe, Christians throughout the millennia have believed that this book, the Bible, it's not human in origin, it's ultimately divine. And yet God used human beings, people like you and me, he used specific men in their time and place in history based upon their personalities and their educations to write exactly what it was that he wanted for his people to know throughout the ages. And so traditionally, it's been understood that one man, a man by the name of Moses, is the primary human author of this book. Um, this book is primarily authored by Moses. And I'm very intentional in saying that it's primarily authored by Moses. Internally, the first five books of the Old Testament, in Numbers and in Deuteronomy, there are these passages, uh, Numbers 33.2, Deuteronomy 31.24, that, that talk about what, you, what we're reading was written down and recorded by, by Moses. And if you want to know who Moses is, there's a great book of the Bible that tells you all about him, the book of Exodus, so the second book of the Bible. That's your homework this week. If you want to know more about Moses, read Exodus. I don't have time this morning. He was the one used by God to deliver the Israelites up and out of Egypt. So Numbers and Deuteronomy both say that what we're reading was written down by Moses. But then, this is kind of the slam dunk. If you want to know um, who the primary author of this was, there's this guy named Jesus, all right? And Jesus in the New Testament comes in John 5, 46. And here's what he says about the first five books of the Bible. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me for what? He wrote of me, all right? Jesus says that Moses was the primary author. I'm going with Jesus, right? So, so we understand that primarily the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses. The reason why I say primarily is because, just to be straightforward, as we read Genesis and as you read the other four books of the Pentateuch, you will discover that if you really study hard, that certain places and people have certain names given to them in Genesis and other parts of the Pentateuch. And they're called by certain names that they did not have during the time of Moses. Are you tracking with me? So, so we have the names of places and the names of people, and those names didn't exist. They weren't called by those names till, till sometimes centuries after Moses had died. So what does that mean? It means that very obviously God so chose to use men afterwards, after the collection of these books that Moses had written down, to, to come and to, to give insight for clarity purpose, into some of the people and the places that are mentioned here. And so that's why I say primarily this book is written by Moses, but God also, because we believe him to be the author, chose to use others to come alongside and contribute to what Moses had written down. 
Secondly, and this is a spoiler alert, okay? If you're going to read all the books of the Pentateuch this week, spoiler alert, Deuteronomy ends by telling us about Moses' death. So, if we have at the end of Deuteronomy a record of Moses' death, and he was the primary author of this, nobody believes that Moses wrote about his death before it actually happened, right? That he, he didn't do that. Somebody came whom God used to, to close the Pentateuch by recording his death and then transitioning into the next books of the Bible. Now, some of you might be shaking in your boots a little bit and saying, well, does this mean that we should doubt the historicity? Should we doubt the accuracy, the truthfulness of this book? No. No, absolutely not. It just means, it's just proof that God used who he needed, when he needed them to communicate what he wanted passed down, passed down without error in truthfulness for us as people. So that's the author, and, and that's going to be important to understand the author, but, but who did he write to? Now, this is, this is significant. Listen to me. This book, Genesis, was written down, recorded, and then given to the Israelites following the Exodus. The recipients of Genesis, the very first recipients, were Israelites following the Exodus. After they had spent 400 years in slavery and been delivered up out of Egypt, were being brought into the Promised Land, God gave them this word, as we'll talk about, for a very specific purpose. So before they they moved into the Promised Land, modern-day Israel, God gave them these first five books of the Old Testament. Now, here's why understanding that the recipients of this book weren't Americans in the year 2018, okay? This is why we need to know this, because by knowing that the recipients were ancient Israelites, it helps us to set the context for some of what we're going to read. You see, if we don't understand that this book was first written to a group of people at a specific time and place in history, we will misread some of the things that are being said. First and foremost, Genesis was written, the Pentateuch was written, not in English. You knew that, right? It was written in ancient Hebrew because that's what they spoke. See, the message of Genesis, the message of the Pentateuch, God intended to be understood by the very first recipients as well as us thousands of years later. He didn't write a book, though, that would be understood by us and foreign to those first hearers. And so he wrote it in Hebrew because they would understand it. Now, that poses a problem for you and me because how many of us know ancient Hebrew in this room, right? Even if you knew ancient Hebrew, guess what? You learned it in the culture today, not back in that time and place. And so as we read the book of Genesis, there's going to be parts of it that you and I might not fully understand because it wasn't written to us exactly at this time and place in history. There's some phrases, and there's some imagery, and there's, and there's some cultural things referenced that are going to be hard to understand at first, but we strive to understand them nonetheless. And what this does for us is it makes us aware, and I just put this in my notes, it means that there's some distance between us and the original hearers that we have to make up. And we deal with this all the time. Shakespeare. Anybody heard of good old Willie Shakespeare, right? You know, 450 years ago, Shakespeare lived. He wrote plays. We study those today. Those plays are still put on. I'm here to tell you, though, if you read and you study Shakespeare at all, and I don't recommend, I'm kidding. Um, If you read and study Shakespeare at all, there's parts of Shakespeare, although it was written just 
four or five hundred years ago, that it's hard for us to fully grasp what's he saying in this instance. Doesn't mean that we don't understand the totality of the play. Don't, doesn't mean that we don't understand the totality of what he's trying to communicate. But there's some phrases, there's some expressions, there's some, there's some inside jokes that don't always translate because we weren't alive back then. We're going to encounter some of that. I just want to be real with you as we study Genesis. Genesis is going to raise some questions. It just is. It's going to raise some questions in your mind and in my mind. And sometimes we're not going to have the answers for those questions. That's just the truth of it. There's some questions that you're going to ask, well, what's the answer to this, Pastor Dave? Where did this person come from? Why were things this way? Why did this? And I'm going to look at you and I'm going to say, you know what? Genesis doesn't give us the answer. It doesn't quite make sense, but here's what I can tell you. There's not one question that's raised in the book of Genesis that goes unanswered that changes the character and nature of our God, how he relates to us as his people, and how he sees us. So we can have absolute confidence in what we're reading. We can have absolute confidence in the overall message of it. But if Genesis raises a question in your mind and it doesn't give the answer to it, that's okay. And sometimes Genesis will raise a question and you won't find the answer in Genesis, but guess what? Other parts of the Bible answer it. And you know what I'm going to do when that happens? I'm going to say, go look at this verse. Look at it with me. Look at how God answers this later, but he leaves it unanswered here. And I want us to be fully aware of this as a church family so, so, that, so that we can come to this book in the way that God intends us to. And so that we can study this book and we don't get shaken when we don't understand certain parts of, of it. And, and to that end, I want to remind us of something. I want you to, to keep something in mind with me as we study this. Every book of the Bible is first and foremost a book of theology. Do you know what I mean by that? Every book of the Bible is first and foremost a book of theology, the study of God. It reveals to us the character, the nature, and the person of God. Genesis is no different. The reason why we need to keep that in mind is because there can be a tendency for us to come to the book of Genesis and want it to be a history textbook. We can come to the book of Genesis and we want it to be a science textbook. And there's no doubt that when it talks of history, it speaks truth. And there's no doubt that when it talks of certain things of science, it can give illumination to things of science. But first and foremost, it is a book of theology, God trying to communicate his character and his nature to us. And the reason why we need to keep that in mind when we consider its author, when we consider its recipients, is because then we won't use this book to make it say things that it wasn't intended to say. A lot of people throughout history, and especially in Christianity, have come to the book of Genesis and have tried to make and prove an agenda rather than allowing God to speak. When we allow God to speak and to hear his theological message to us, that's where the blessing, that's where the edification comes. But with all that said, let me just say this. There is some edification and there is some benefit wrestling through even some of the unanswered questions in the book of Genesis. And because... I believe that's important because the elders of our church believe that's important. What I'm going to do is this. Some people ask me as we're getting ready to study Genesis, they said, Dave, sometimes in services, sometimes you'll leave time for like question and answer after your sermon. Are you going to do that in Genesis? No way. I'm not going to do it, okay? Because cause it will take us down roads that I don't necessarily want us to go down on Sunday morning. But because I do believe it's important to look at some of those things. Twice, first, the first week of October, we haven't decided if it's going to be Sunday night or Wednesday night, and then 
the first week of November, I'm going to hold what I'm calling going deeper in Genesis. And so as you have questions that maybe I don't answer on Sunday morning or questions that you wrestle through, I want you to write those down. I want you to email those in. And we're going to come on those evenings and wherever we've been through in the book of Genesis up to that point, we're going to have dialogue. We're going to attempt as best we can to answer. I believe you'll be blessed by that. I think it'll be encouraging and stimulating. So we're going we're gonna to do that. But when we gather on Sunday mornings, you're going to find that my thrust, my emphasis, is to focus on the overarching message and the purpose of this book. The purpose of this book, which I believe to be this. The book of Genesis, if you, if you were to ask me, why was this book written? Why did God work through Moses to give this book first and foremost to the people of Israel at the time and place in history that they did? And then what place does it have in our lives today? Here's, here's what I believe the purpose of Genesis is. To reveal God's answers to life's most important questions. We have the book of Genesis because it is God giving us his answers. Not my answers, not Moses' answers, not philosophical answers, but God's answers to life's most important questions. Remember who I said the very first recipients of this book were? They were the Israelites coming out of slavery in Egypt. Sometimes we can look back at history and we can look at people who lived 3,500 years ago and it's hard for us to relate to them in one sense is to say they, they were so much, they were different from us. They were more simple. They were, their lives were less complicated. I want to say hogwash. <laughs> I want to say humans are humans are humans. And, and the struggles that we experience today were the exact same struggles, the same thoughts that they had or the struggles that we even have today. You have a group of people who for 400 years had been in slavery and in bondage. God rescues and delivers them out of that. They're getting ready to start brand new lives. They're exposed to all these cultures around them. For 400 years, they've been exposed to this Egyptian culture. And now they're trying to, to start and to navigate life as the people of God. And I'm here to tell you, they have questions just like we have questions. And and. Genesis comes and God comes and he speaks to them and he attempts to answer those questions. I think there's four primary questions that Genesis addresses. Those four questions are this. How and why did we get here? How did, how did we get here? Why are we even here? Do you see that first question? You can think about the Israelites coming out of, out of Egypt. Not how did we get here, how did we get rescued out of Egypt, but, but how, did, how did we get here in the first place? Because they've been living in Egypt for all those years. And the Egyptians had an answer to how they got here. And then there's this question of, why are we here? Is there purpose? Is there meaning in our life? Tell me that's not an important question. Tell me the people today still don't struggle with, why am I even here? Why am I even here? And then there's this question. Why are things the way that they are? Why are our lives in the world the way that they are? And then Genesis comes in and answers this question, what, if anything, can be done about our situation? These are profound, profound questions. And each one of them is going to be addressed in the book of Genesis. The people of God, those first Israelites, they needed to know the answer to these questions, and we do too. I said earlier, listen to me again, I believe that every problem in our lives and in our world comes from people like you and me attempting to answer these questions divorced 
from what God says and then living in light of what we think the answer is. But on the flip side, if you and I come to hear what God has to say, how he answers these questions, and we live in light of it, it changes everything. God gave us the book of Genesis so that we would know his answer to life's most important questions, and in turn, his answers would move us and shape us to worship him, love him, and obey him, which, as we're going to see in a moment, is what we were created for from the beginning. This is a powerful and life-transforming book if we will just listen. Now, the way that that Genesis goes about answering this, and and here's where I'm going to fly through this. I'm going to now give you basically a message on the entirety of of the book of Genesis in just a few minutes here. The, The way that Genesis answers these questions is in three different parts of the book. The book of Genesis can be divided into three different parts, and so it answers these questions in kind of logical or, or I'd say even chronological order. The first section of the book of Genesis in your Bibles is Genesis 1 through 2, and it's the creation story. The first section of Genesis we call the creation. And it's in Genesis 1 and 2 that God comes and says, here, let me answer the primary question that's on your mind right now, which is, how did we get here? How did, how did everything come to exist? And it answers the question in Genesis 1-1, the very first, first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God. Who? God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis starts with God and nothing else. We had that question this morning in our catechism, and it was an interesting way to phrase it. What is God? Did that strike anybody else as a funny way to say it? You would want to say, who is God, right? That's where you kind of would want to go. The reason why that question asks, what is God, is because it wants you and I to realize when we're talking about God, We're not talking about a person like you and me. We're talking about something totally other. And Genesis 1-1 starts by letting us know, when you are dealing with God, you're dealing with someone who has existed for eternity outside of time and space. Beginning didn't even happen until God said, now time exists. In the beginning, God created everything. How did we get here? The answer is very simple. God created it. God created everything everything. No accidents, no mistakes, no aliens. God. He brought what we see, what we feel, what we touch, sense into existence. And that everything included, guess what? Humanity. It included humanity. In fact, as you read the creation account, you discover that with the creation of man and woman, we reach the pinnacle of God's creation. You might not feel like the pinnacle of a lot of things, but God says that you and I are the pinnacle of his creation. And I'm not just saying that to make you feel good about yourselves. I'm saying that because in the creation account, we get the answer to why you and I are even here. Why we're here. Is there purpose to our existence? Is there worth and value to human life? Genesis 127 says absolutely there is. Absolutely there is. So God created man in his own image. Nothing else in creation was created in his own image. We're going to spend actually a few weeks in and around this verse. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Man and woman, equally made in the image of God. And what that means is you and I were created to be reflections of the character, the nature of God, and to be 
representatives of God's rule on this earth. This question is huge. Because there could be a person here today, young or old, who's wondering, does my life have any value? Does it have any meaning? Does it have any worth? Let me go really negative for a moment, then I'm going to go really positive. Okay, watch how this goes. In my mind, so very clearly, there is no answer to the person who comes to you and says, am I worth anything apart from the existence of God? If somebody comes to you and says, is there any value? Is there any worth? Does my life mean anything? The only answer that secular philosophy can give you, if they're honest, is no. Your life doesn't have any worth. It doesn't have any meaning. It has no purpose at all. You're just a clump of molecules. That's depressing. It's depressing. And see, if, if you don't know God's answers to these questions, that's what you're left with. Push me on it. Come back to me. Show me how without a God who creates everything, without a God who actually gives purpose and meaning to your life, that you can find purpose and meaning apart from him. The answer is you absolutely can't. But for the person today who is asking or thinking that question, God comes and says, hear my answer. You are made in my image. Your life was created by me, not by accident, not because I slipped up, because I dropped something on the floor. It's because I intended to create you to reflect my glory in the world. This is why we're here. God created us to reflect his glory in the world. And when God was done with his creation, Genesis 1.31 says he looked at everything that he had made and he said it was very what? Good. Nothing wrong with what I see here, God says. Everything I made was perfect and in order and right and good exactly as it should, should be. And the Genesis account Chapters 1 and 2, they go on and it talks about how God created the first man and woman and Adam and Eve and he puts them in the Garden of Eden, this place of perfection, where all they knew was love and joy and, and peace and everything was provided for them and there was harmony in creation. The birds are chirping, the animals are, are frolicking. Adam and Eve have everything that they want because God had made his world perfect, created us in his image to reflect his glory. But if you, if you get all the way through Genesis 1 and 2 and, and you read it and you, and you have half a rational mind, you're going to come to the end of Genesis chapter 2 and you're going to say, Dave, I see how God has answered those questions, but, but now there's a question formulating in my mind. Because I look at the world of Genesis 1 and 2 and I look at my world today and, and, it, and it ain't don't look anything like that. You, you got peace and harmony and joy and yet you look out in the world today and you see devastation. You see a hurricane that's coming up the Florida coast. You see another mass shooting yesterday that starts with a, with a traffic stop and then some, somebody goes off and kills five people. And you're just like, that's not... Genesis 2 sounds like a fairy tale, man, in comparison to what I'm living in. You see, right after answering these two questions, we're left with this question, so then... Why are our lives in the world the way they are if that's what God first created? Why are our lives in the world the way they are if this is what was first created? 
And the answer to that is found in Genesis 3 through 11, the section of Genesis called the fall. You want to know why our world and our lives are the way they are? Genesis 3 through 11 comes and it tells us. It says that it plants, God comes and he plants Adam and Eve in the garden. And he says to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, accept and obey my word. And as long as you do it, as long as you follow me, as long as you don't live according to your own way, but my way, life will go on as perfectly and as beautiful as it is right now. And so he, so he says, see, see, that, see that tree over there? That's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve, you don't even know what good and evil is at this point, but let me just kind of explain it to you. God says, um, don't eat of the tree of it, because the moment that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're going to what? What does he say? You'll die. You'll know good and evil in that moment. But, but I'm telling you, if you just trust my word, you'll have life forever because there's life in me. Reject my word and you're going to get the opposite of life. You're going to get death. Genesis 3 tells us. The serpent comes in. He's there in the garden and he tempts Adam and Eve to question God's word. And in that moment, they hear the serpent say, did God really say that you shouldn't eat of it? Do you think that maybe God is keeping you from something? And in that moment, they reject the word of God. They accept their own interpretation of things. They take, they eat of the fruit. And do you know what turned paradise into hell? It was man and woman rejecting God's word. All that is wrong with the world is a direct result of humanity's rejection of God and his ways. Why don't we live in a world of Genesis 2? It's because the blessing of Genesis 2 was replaced with the curse. The curse that comes when man and woman reject God's ways and accept their own because that's not how we were made to function. It's not the way that things are supposed to be. With their sin, everything that is bad came to be in the world. And the reality is that every single one of us followed in the footsteps of Adam and Eve. We were born sinners and we have lived out our lives in sin. You reject God, you're going to get the opposite of it. There's no joy, no peace, no love. The pain and suffering in our world is a direct result of man's rejection of God and his ways. And so when you read the rest of Genesis 3 through 11, guess what you read? You read all the low life, lowlights of humanity. The first brothers, one kills the other. And there's this descent of humanity into more and more sin and destruction to the point where, where God finally says, I'm going to wipe the whole thing clean. I'm going to send a worldwide flood. I'm only going to spare Noah. And so he spares Noah and his, and his family, but everything else is destroyed. And you think, well, maybe, just maybe, maybe things are going to turn out. Maybe Noah's going to turn the corner on these things. But you know what the very first thing Noah does? He gets off the boat. He plants a vineyard. He begins to be fruitful and multiply, but then he makes some wine and he gets drunk. And you begin to see things are just like they always were. And yet way back, way back in, in Genesis 3, right after Adam and Eve sinned, there's this verse, Genesis 3.15, where, where God says he's going to still do something. The evil that was brought into the world, God's going to address one day. He's going to send someone that's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to make things new. And you begin to think, 
well, well, it's not Noah. Is this day of re- restoration ever going to come? Can, can humanity ever know anything other than the curse? Can it ever know anything other than disobedience to God? You see, by the time you get to the end of Genesis chapter 11, it's pretty depressing. And you think, this is how things are always going to be. In fact, I noticed something. Genesis chapter 11 leads into the final question, which is, what if anything can be done about our situation? Will we forever only know the pain and the suffering that surrounds us? Knowing the answer to that question, uh, even more specifically, knowing the answer to the question of, of what made things wrong, why things are the way they are. If you don't know the answer to that question, then you can never know the answer to this question. Because if you think that what is wrong with our world, as many people do, that the source of our problems goes back to economic inequality, that, that, it, goes, that it goes back to psychological problems, that it goes back to um, emotional problems, if, if you think that that if we just address those things, then, then everything will be right with the world. You're, you're never going to get to the solution. You're never going to hear the answer that God gives. I don't know if you noticed this, but in sci-fi movies, there's a, this reoccurring theme I noticed. In certain sci-fi movies, secular people have already got this figured out. In sci-fi movies, what happens often is somebody creates an artificial intelligence. And they create artificial intelligence for the purpose of helping humanity which I just am always like, this isn't going to end well, right? You know, even today, they're doing things. I'm just like, did you, have, did you not see the movies, right? And they create artificial intelligence, and, and they give the artificial intelligence this command. They said, you need to help humanity. You need to help humanity. Well, artificial intelligence in all of these movies looks around at humanity, and, and, it, and it sees how humanity functions. And almost inevitably, what's the solution that artificial intelligence comes up with to help humanity? Wipe it out. Eradicate it, Right? Do you realize how profound that is? Because that's the same solution that the Bible gives. For the wages of sin is what? Death. You want to deal with the problems? Death has to enter in. They have to be wiped out. They all have to be destroyed. That's the only way that humanity can be dealt with. And God says, you know what? Yeah, that's your only hope. That's my only hope. You have to die. It has to be eliminated. But God comes, though, and he does something. In Genesis chapter 12, a page is turned. In Genesis chapter 12, we find the answer to this question. What if anything can be done about our situation? With left to ourselves, the answer is nothing. Nothing can be done. But in Genesis chapter 12, we find the story of redemption beginning. And God comes in Genesis chapter 12, and he approaches a man named Abram. And he comes to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, and there's nothing special about Abram. He he comes, and he approaches Abram, and he... Well, let's just read what he says. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you, Abram, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will, what? Curse. But listen to this. And in you all the families of the earth will be, what? Blessed. Do you know what we have here? Right here we have the promise that God's going to reverse the curse. God comes to Abram and he says, with you I am starting a plan 
of redemption for mankind. Through you, Abram, through me using you, not because of what you will do, but because of what I will do, I'm going to make it possible for this curse to be reversed, for, for humanity to be restored, for all that is wrong with the world to be dealt with once and for all. You see, we ask the question, what if anything can be done about our situation? The answer that God gives in the book of Genesis is, by the work of God alone, redemption is possible. You can't do it. You can't pay the debt. You can't reverse the curse. But I can, and I will, and I'm going to do it through your family, Abram. And the rest of Genesis chapters 12 through 50 begin the story begin the story of how God is setting up Abram, who turns into Abraham, and his entire family, and from his line, pointing forward to one who will one day come and redeem all creation. And just in case you begin to think that, that maybe they can do it on their own, I'm here to tell you, Abraham's family is messed up. When we get there, you're going to see them make mistake after mistake, yet God intercedes and works, and he is faithful to his promise, till one day... Jesus, the Nazarene, who we sung about earlier, enters into time and space. God in the flesh, Emmanuel, from the seed of Abram, comes into the story and is the fulfillment of this promise. Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 through 14 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You were cursed because of your disobedience. Jesus says, I will take that curse upon myself, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And then he says, So that in Christ Jesus, ready for this, the blessing of Abraham, the blessing that was mentioned 2,000 years previously, would be fulfilled in and through Jesus Christ. I come before you this morning and I come to you and say this book is so significant because it gives us God's answers to life's most important questions. Because if you and I are going to attempt to change our lives, to deal with the brokenness and pain in our life, to deal with our disobedience and sin, apart from God's provision, you're going to fail. But if you look to his promise, you see, Abraham and the saints of the Old Testament they had the promise of God that pointed forward to a day when one would come who would crush the head and make all things right. They didn't know it was going to be Jesus. They just knew that it would be through someone of Abraham's seed. We, on this side, have a backwards-looking faith, looking back down through the ages and seeing that that promise was fulfilled in Jesus. And because Jesus came, because Jesus died on the cross, because Jesus did the work that we could not do, we now are restored to the life that God had for us in the beginning. Praise be to his name for that, amen? Do you know the answers to life's most important questions? That's number one this morning. But I'd also ask you this. Do you believe God's answers to life's most important questions? As you leave here today, as I leave here today, my challenge to us is this. Will we believe 
what God has to say to us, because that's one of the things that the book of Genesis does. It confronts the answers that we're tempted to give, and it says, accept the answers that God gives. Because if, if we got here as a creation of God, then that means that he is over my life and I am beholden to him. If we are here because he created us to reflect his glory, then it means that I don't live for myself and you don't live for yourself. You live for the God who made you and gave your life purpose. If our lives are the way that they are because of our disobedience and rejection of God, then I need to, you need to stop coming up with our own solutions, but turn to the promise of God in his son, Jesus Christ, and experience the redemption that comes only through him. I hope that as a church, when it's all said and done, we will be those who trust and obey what God has to say so that we might live in the fullness of life that you and I from the beginning were created to have. May he help us as we begin this task. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, as we come before you, some in this room right now, some are in that place, Lord, where they've been trying to live according to their own way and their own plans and purposes. Lord, help us in this moment just to stop all that and to say, I'm going to confess my answers are not your answers, God. My solutions are not your solutions. So I'm going to give up trying to be my own God. I'm going to give up trying to believe my own word. I'm going to believe yours. I'm going to trust what you say about my life, and I'm going to repent of anything in my life, Lord, that keeps me from, from you in that way. And I'm going to believe, and I'm going to trust in the forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ and know the new life that he offers to me. And because he gives it, and he gives it freely, I can live in it. And so, Lord, help us as we do this. By the power of your spirit and by the encouragement of the body that you have given for the glory of your name, for the good of one another. I pray we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.